0: We are continuing through a study here in the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Matthew is one of the most complete Gospels that we have of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you weren't aware of this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic Gospels. It means that they're very similar in terms of their content. And... Um, scholars go back and forth on this from time to time, but currently I think the prevailing view is that Matthew is actually the first of the Gospels to be written. And this was somewhere in the late 50s to mid 60s AD. And you might wonder, why is it that Matthew would write a Gospel in the first place, and why would you wait so long after Jesus' ascension to write it? And that would be a fair question, and the answer is simply this that up until that point, you still had so many living eyewitnesses that it was very difficult for the message to be adulterated because there were too many people still alive who would correct you. In fact, we know from the Apostle Paul that there were at one point 500 people that the Lord revealed himself to at one time. So there were hundreds of people that could give eyewitness account to the resurrected Christ. Uh, You also had, for at least the first 90 years or so of the new century, the apostles living, the ones who walked with Christ and were taught by Christ and were appointed by him as apostles. And so it wasn't until about now, in the mid-60s, that many of those original witnesses were beginning to die off and there was a need for the next generation to be instructed in what Jesus said and did and his life and ministry. And a gospel is a way of referring to what is called the good news, the good news being that Christ came to say that in him there is an opportunity for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with a holy God. Now, if you go to the text of Matthew, you'll notice that there is always a context that we have to establish before we can properly understand it. And over the last uh, couple of weeks, We were in Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. And so, just very briefly, by way of review and context, if you look back at the very beginning of Matthew, you'll remember that it began with a genealogy. Matthew began with a genealogy because he was intent on proving that Jesus Christ came from a family line that would put him in the household of David. Now, he was in the household of David by adoption through his earthly Father, who was not his biological father, Joseph, but also through his biological mother, Mary, whose seed alone the Holy Spirit used to bring forth this human child. Now, the other gospel writers have different goals. That's why Luke, for example, wants to prove that Jesus, being fully man, goes all the way back to Adam. John wants to prove that Jesus, being God, was the very beginning and was the Word, and he was with God. Mark, who is focused almost entirely on Jesus as the Son of Man and the suffering servant, bypasses all of that and actually begins his gospel where we're going to be today with John the Baptist. But here in Matthew, after he gives the genealogy He wants to be very clear about the nature of Jesus' birth, which takes you to the rest of Matthew chapter 1, and how all of this was the fulfillment of prophecy, specifically the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. He is giving us instruction on how to understand the Old Testament and how to understand prophecy, and how to see that while the authors of the Old Testament had a certain understanding of what these prophecies were related to, there was always a secondary, or perhaps you might say a greater fulfillment of that, and that it was pointing ultimately to Christ. And that's not saying that every single Old Testament passage directly was speaking of Christ, but that the entire Old Covenant was coming together and converging with the message that was to be delivered, that all of this was pointing forward to Him. Sometimes people talk about revelation as something that is continually being delivered Throughout the Old Testament. And they use different words to describe that. Of all the words that I've heard, I think the one I think is, is best is the word cumulative revelation. It means that it just keeps getting added to and added to. It's not that it's being improved per se, but everything is beginning to get more fully and completely rounded out. And so the author here, Matthew, is now standing on this side of that great divide between the completion of the Old Covenant the 400 years of silence where God did not provide any revelation, and then now at the very beginning, with the dawn of that word again coming through a new prophet, a man who we're going to talk about this morning, namely John the Baptist. In chapter 2 of Matthew, we see that he wants you to understand that these foreign magicians from the East, who we call the Magi, came because they had seen and been instructed somehow through their means that there was a king that had been born, and they knew him to be the king of the Jews. And he wasn't made a king by Caesar, like Herod. He was born king. And so they knew exactly where to go when the king of the Jews was born, the only place to go, and that would be Jerusalem. They were instructed by the scribes and the Pharisees that though Jerusalem would be where you would think a king like that would be born, it turns out he was born in Bethlehem. And so as you know, in the rest of that account, they make their way down, and as a consequence, Herod, as a result of finding out about this, does everything he can to exterminate this child who was born. That would be his competition. And all of those children, under the age of two, were slaughtered as a way to somehow prevent this child from ascending to the throne. His parents warned that this would come, flee to Egypt, and then again in fulfillment of prophecy, they are called out. And it says, out of Egypt I have called my son. The reference to son going back to not only Micah, but actually going all the way back to Exodus. Not only back to Hosea, but all the way back to exodus you see the prophets were writing something that matthew is able now by inspiration of the spirit and by full understanding of how all of this was coming together being instructed by jesus himself that this was now pointing to christ himself now at the end of chapter two where we got to a couple of weeks ago It ended with another fulfillment of prophecy, not a specific one, but namely that he would be called a Nazarene, uh, that that he would hail from Nazareth. That would be his residence. It wouldn't be his birthplace, but his residence. And what's interesting to me in terms of the biography is that that's where the story ends and then it goes dark for about 30 years. You'll notice that between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, it is silence on the life of Jesus. There is nothing else that Matthew sees fit to include here. In fact, if you go back and you look at the other Gospels even, there are very few accounts given. One in the Gospel of Luke about the fact that when he was about 12 years old, he was informing the lawyers and the scribes and the rabbis at the temple about a better understanding of the Old Covenant Scriptures. But other than that, there's almost nothing known of Jesus' youth. The story picks up right here. And you'll notice it doesn't actually pick up specifically with Jesus. It actually picks up with the one who is going to herald his arrival. And so with that, we find ourselves back here in chapter 3. And with the immediate context, what I've done is given you some brief points on the first page of the bulletin. You can turn to look at that if you would. The prophets here wrote that Elijah would return to announce the arrival of Messiah. You see... The Jews were eagerly anticipating this. They had been waiting now for 400 years since the close of the Old Testament for somebody to come and to liberate them from the oppression of the Romans. And they were wanting that Messiah to arrive. And they should be looking for him. In fact, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, these were texts that were saying that Elijah would come and would announce that this man was on the horizon. Get prepared. In fact, even some of the books that were written between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New would say the same thing. You may not be fully aware of this, but for the better part of 1,800 years... Bibles were produced with 80 books, not 66, because it was back in 1546 that the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent made it their authoritative, definitive decision that there were 80 books in the Bible, and they were all inspired, and they were all authoritative. And that was done in reaction to the Reformation and men like Martin Luther who said, no, there were only 66 inspired books. And that's why the confessions will all take a moment at the very beginning to identify what we have that is the actual inspired Word of God, the 66 books that are now generally only produced in your Protestant Bibles. But among those 14 other books, the ones that were written between about 200 BC and about 50 BC, were other books that were promising the coming of this Messiah. They were other books that were not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they were books that were written by well-known rabbis or thinkers, and they were saying that this Messiah was going to come, and it was making the people very much eager and filled with expectation that one day on the horizon would surface this Messiah, this great political leader who would liberate them finally. You see, John the Baptist, or you could call him the baptizer, says he's not Elijah. We see that in John chapter 1 verse 21, but Jesus Christ the Messiah says that he is. How do we reconcile that? Just for a moment, you can flip over to Matthew chapter 11. I know this is a lot of context, but it's very important to understand the text. Matthew chapter 11. We're going to get here eventually, I promise. But since it could be several months I just want to give you a little spoiler. Beginning in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's Jesus speaking. Now, is there any evidence that he was greater than Jesus? No, of course not. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that of other men on earth, none has been greater. That's why I entitled this message, The Second Greatest Man. But among normal humans, he was the greatest. Not because he was powerful, not because he was rich, not because he was influential, not because he was particularly wise, not because he was handsome, but because he was the one who was entrusted before his birth with the responsibility of being the herald, the announcer of the coming of Messiah. But Jesus goes on, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence taken by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's what Jesus said when he spoke a parable. The parable was not meant to make the teaching more understandable. That's a big misunderstanding today. That's the excuse some preachers give for just telling a lot of stories. They say, well, Jesus told stories. Look at all the parables. Well, when the disciples took him aside to ask for clarification, Jesus said, I speak in parables to hide the truth, not to reveal the truth. But he would always say that those who had ears to hear, let them hear. Meaning that the parables made sense to those whose ears had been opened by the Spirit to know what he was really saying, to understand the truth. And he's saying the same thing here. And I'm saying the same thing. If you have ears to hear, you'll understand what he means when he says that this One who comes is Elijah. Not specifically a reincarnation of Elijah, but the One who was promised this Elijah in spirit and in power who would announce His arrival. And Jesus also says in Mark chapter 9, you don't need to turn there, but just listen, that Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that He should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come And they do to him whatever they please, as it is written of him. They had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah had arrived there. The disciples were amazed to see them, didn't know what to do, wanted to build three tents so that the three of them could just stay up there forever. And on their way back down, Jesus says, I don't want you to tell anybody about what you have seen And when they ask about Elijah, he says, notice that Elijah came and the people did whatever they wanted to him, and he died at the hands of wicked men. And he said, so too the Son of Man is going to die at the hands of wicked men. You see, this Messiah that you thought was going to come and be the political liberator is the one who is actually going to come and be murdered, not only by the Romans, but through a conspiracy set up by the Jews. He came to his own, and his own received him not. So, all of this is what's going on in the minds of the people when we really get into Matthew 3. So, now with all of that, let's take a look at this particular text. The main point is this that John the Baptizer fulfills the prophecy about the return of Elijah and announces the arrival of Messiah. To understand this more clearly, let's answer three questions this morning. Looking at John the Baptist, who is he? What is his message? Why does it matter? Who is he? What is his message and why does it matter? At the very beginning we see in verse 1 that in those days John the Baptist came. Now that word came is really important. It's not just a word that describes him arriving on the scene. It's actually a word that describes an arrival in a very formal way. It's used two other places in the Gospel of Matthew. The first one is back in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. It's a special word. They arrived in Jerusalem. They they were the ones that were expected, and all of a sudden, there they are. Behold, they've arrived. The next use is here in 3.1, and the last use is in this chapter, in a section we'll cover next week, that begins like this in verse 13. Then Jesus came. The Magi came. John the Baptist came. Jesus came. This man's arrival is something that is meant to make you sit up and take notice. It's a way of saying, behold, something is happening here in the story, in the narrative. Who is he? Well, notice here, he is called John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has come for the purpose of preaching. He is a proclaimer. His job is to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven has come and to prepare the people. He was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And wilderness, by the way, just to be clear on this, wilderness is not like driving a few hours from here and being in a national park. You know, that's not what we're talking about. Wilderness here was desert. Wilderness meant there was nothing growing out there. Wilderness was desolate and dangerous. This is where he was, out in the Judean wilderness, in the desert. And he was making a proclamation, and it was this in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is calling the people to a particular action. We're going to describe it in more detail here in a moment. But he is calling them to turn... And the reason that they are to turn is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a lot of speculation as to why Matthew says kingdom of heaven and not kingdom of God, like the other writers. And I think the best explanation is the simplest one, and that is Matthew, being a Jewish man, understands that it would have been of some offense to the other Jews for him to be using the name of God over and over again. In fact, many of them were so reverent of the name they never used it. And so. So this is a way for him to say kingdom of God without saying kingdom of God. He says kingdom of heaven. But this is Messiah's kingdom. And it's here. It's arrived. And I'm telling you about it. I'm letting you know. He continues on. Notice that for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Matthew commenting now. From Isaiah 40 in verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. It's quite fascinating that this man is not only a herald, he's not only a a preacher, but he is also one who was prophesied. And once again, just by way of context, would you please join me over in Isaiah chapter 40? Isaiah is made up of 66 chapters, the first 39 chapters, basically the judgment that God brings upon his people for their disobedience. But chapter 40 begins with words of comfort. Why is that? Because when God makes a covenant promise, he never goes back on it. And because of the covenant promise that God had made with Israel, he had to punish Israel for her idolatry and her spiritual adultery. But because of the strength of His covenant, He said, though I must punish you for your disobedience, because that's what a covenant relationship was like in that context. There were blessings for obedience, and there were curses for disobedience. However, I will not utterly and completely and forever forsake you. And so after all of these chapters of judgment, they then round the corner, and here comes the last Chapters from 40 onward, and it begins with comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from Yahweh's hand equal for all her sins. Many translations say double, by the way. That's not correct. Double only in the sense that it's the double, like a stunt double. It's the equal, it's the other. Coverdale in 1535 in his translation says sufficient correction. Probably a better way to look at it. But notice here that they're saying Yahweh is at hand. He, the covenant keeping God, now arrives back to care for his people. Verse 3, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough place a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh is spoken. Yahweh's hand is at work. The way of Yahweh is put forward. The glory of Yahweh is on display. The mouth of Yahweh has spoken it and promises it. And they borrow the ancient imagery of what happens when a king came to visit In the old days, when a king would leave the palace and come to visit a town, they didn't just make the roads better for him, they made the roads for him. In those days, the roads weren't made straight and wide. The roads were just the result of whatever path had been traveled year after year after year. There was nothing straight. They were just made originally by the animals, and then the people made those paths, and the wagons made those paths. You know, it's not unlike the city of Vista. There ain't a straight road anywhere in this town. Have you noticed? It's the first thing I noticed when I moved here. The whole place is just one circular mess of roads. Well, that's how it was back then too. And when the king came to town, there was none of that for him and his entourage. And so what you did is you brought out the slaves and you literally made a straight road for him. And the imagery here goes a lot further. Because you didn't build bridges over the canyons. And you didn't build ramps up and over the hills. In this case, the hills are made flat. And the valleys are brought up. You know, this is the picture of the ultimate king arriving and everything being given to him and made perfect for him. And so when this imagery is borrowed by John the Baptist and then by Matthew. It is to say that this great king has arrived, greater than any earthly king. Back to Matthew chapter 3. The next part of this, under who he is, look at verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Brothers and sisters, unlike today, Matthew does not have a concern for what the celebrity preacher is wearing and eating. Uh, This is not something that is put into here because of the public curiosity. It's put in here because not only is he spoken of as coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but he also comes actually looking like Elijah. Elijah had a similar outfit Elijah also dressed like this. So John the Baptist came not only like Elijah, but also dressed like Elijah, and he also ate like Elijah. Elijah spent much of his time out in the wilderness as well, and in the wilderness there wasn't much to eat. And so he had the locusts and he had the wild honey. There were four kinds of locusts, by the way, that Leviticus said that you could eat, four types of insects. And so of these four, he would have had the options there in the desert to eat them. And in terms of the um, honey, that was also common in that place, and so you would find it in the ground or in the clefts of rocks, and, and that made up the majority of his diet. That's all that the author is trying to say here. Well let's continue. Verse five: "Then Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region about the Jordan, were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. What were these people doing? It says, "Jerusalem, Judea." and all the area about the Jordan. This would have been Jerusalem, the city center, Judea, the small towns around Jerusalem, and the region about the Jordan on either side. What it means is that where all of the tribes of Israel had settled, this is where people were coming from. All Israel was coming to him. And they were coming out to confess. Now, Dave did an excellent job last week of describing to you what the word confess actually means just by way of reminder. To confess something was to agree with God. It's a Greek word that, when used in the New Testament, simply means to say the same thing. And they come out and they are confessing, they are agreeing, they are confessing their sins, they acknowledge that they are not right with God they are saying out the same things. And what's interesting here is that they are confessing sins as Jews who are being told by the religious leaders that their real place of privilege came from their birth, not by what they did. They were confessing that one of their greatest sins was buying into the religious system. And so this was a massive threat to the scribes and the Pharisees, to those who wanted to hold religious control over the people. And what you have here is a number of people coming out, they're confessing their sins, they're acknowledging it, and they're allowing John to do something to them that would have been utterly humiliating to a Jew, and for many of them in that day, completely unacceptable, unimaginable. They were getting baptized. Now, I know I'm speaking to, at least if you're part of our church, a bunch of Baptists to us. That doesn't seem odd. In fact, many of you have been baptized. Some of you have been baptized more than once. I mean, baptism is what we do. We have a tank right behind that screen under the cross where from time to time people who have put their faith in Christ and testify to the church are immersed in water and baptized. Very normal for us. Well, very unnormal for a Jew. Why? Because in those days, Jews didn't get baptized. Only proselytes got baptized only gentiles got baptized and what happened is you got baptized when you converted away from your gentile paganism and you became a jew you became somebody subject to what the jews taught their religion you began following their god and what's interesting is that you didn't go and stand in a tank and give a testimony and have a priest dip you under the water no you did that to yourself you were washed. There were ceremonial cleansings, and you did that. And, and while everybody washed, even the Jews, mostly just their hands, very particular way of doing that, when a Gentile came to worship, he had to wash himself much more extensively because, after all, he was unclean. He was from the wrong race. And what these Jews are doing is they're coming out as Jews, and they are not only being baptized, signifying that they aren't really right with God, but also letting somebody else baptize them. They couldn't even cleanse themselves, is what they're saying. Not even like a Gentile who at least could cleanse himself and make himself worthy to be a Jew. They're saying, we can't even as Jews cleanse ourselves. We need somebody else to do it for us. And John the Baptist says, by the way, the baptism that I'm doing isn't even a baptism that's ultimately going to save you because the one who comes after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) So imagine the humility they're showing. They're coming out into the wilderness. They're allowing themselves to be baptized. They are showing their need for confession of sin, and they're embracing a baptism that the Baptist himself says won't even fully accomplish what they know in their heart is necessary. That's the scene. That's who John the Baptizer is. And that brings us to the second point, that this man, a proclaimer, this man, a prophet, this man, a Levite, This man had a message. Look what it says in verses 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, John the Baptist would not be part of our welcome team. What are you doing here? Who told you to be here? You brood of vipers. That sounds like a nasty thing to call somebody. It was. This guy was hurling massive insults at the very religious establishment. And he is saying, how did you smell the flames and start slithering out here? Why are you coming? And what does he say? If you really want to be out here for the right reason, rather than just to be a spectator of what I'm doing, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This gives us a wonderful opportunity to talk about the doctrine of repentance. What was John the Baptist saying, well, many of you have probably, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, had to wrestle with the meaning of repentance. What does it mean to repent? In fact, the word repentance and the word confession are often used interchangeably. In fact, you might wonder, well, did I have to repent once for forgiveness, or do I have to keep repenting? Well, what happens if I die and I have unconfessed sin? I mean, I remember as a child vividly talking to a Sunday school teacher about that one time because she told us that if you want to go to heaven, then you have to repent and confess your sins. And I said, Well, what happens if I don't confess all my sins? Because if confessing my sins and going to heaven go together, then what happens if I die and I have unconfessed sin? And she didn't have an answer, and so I'd ask her again and again and again. I just remember this so vividly. She got so frustrated with me. She just said, Jonathan, the angels will remind you. (laughs) Never forget, if you're a Sunday school teacher here, that's the wrong answer. (laughs) The angels will remind you. Five years old, I knew that wasn't true. What's he talking about? let's be clear. When one repents of their sin, it is the result of a regeneration done by the Holy Spirit and an imputation of the righteousness of Christ which once and for all justifies you in the eyes of God, meaning that you, like everybody else, will die with unconfessed sin. There was a great debate over this issue about 30 years ago. And it continues to this day, but two prominent evangelicals, both of whom are with the Lord right now, went back and forth through letters. And I have copies of these letters, and they're quite interesting to read. And I thought I would share with you just a couple of paragraphs, because it helps to clarify this issue of repentance The author of this letter, who is answering his opponent, and I believe would be an opponent of what we teach as well, he says this, quote, we say on the one hand that no Christian is a carnal Christian in the sense that he is unchanged and without any fruit, and that all Christians are carnal in the sense that they struggle with the flesh until glorification. You cannot be a Christian and born again and not bear fruit. You cannot be a fruitless Christian. It was a term back in the 80s and 90s that was coined called a carnal Christian. It doesn't exist. However, every Christian will have a residual, a remaining carnality because in this flesh we continue to sin until we are glorified. Furthermore, he says this, quote, I quite agree that repentance without faith will not save. Meaning you can be very sorry and you can repent and you can confess and that doesn't necessarily equal salvation if there is no faith because you are saved by faith. But, the author continues, it is also true that without faith or that faith without repentance, pardon me, let me phrase it better, quote, but is it also true that faith without repentance will save? That's the question he's asking. Can you have faith without repentance? Now, this is something that was being advocated for, and uh, the answer is no. He goes on to quote John Calvin, who says this, the shortest transition, however, will be from faith to repentance. For repentance being properly understood, it will better appear how a man is justified freely by faith alone. And yet, that holiness of life, real holiness, as it is called, is inseparable from the free imputation of righteousness. Pause. Just be clear, Calvin is saying is that when you are saved, when Christ's righteousness is imputed to you, inseparably from that is a natural repentance and desire for a holy life. Is that clear? So important, brothers and sisters. Back to Calvin. That repentance not only always follows faith, but is produced by it, and that ought to be without controversy. Well, Dr. Calvin, there's still a lot of controversy. (laughs) I'll summarize it with this, another great statement from the letter, quote, Surely we do not want to make repentance the grounds of our justification." We don't even say that about faith. Only the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith is the grounds of justification. Again, this is why when we stand before the Lord, it isn't something that needs to be approached with fear. Have I confessed everything? Is there unconfessed sin? Did I do well enough? Because it is not about what I've done. It's about what Christ has done. That's the ground of my justification. Back to this letter, quote, the question is, though, we must distinguish between faith and repentance, but can we separate them? In other words, is it possible to have saving faith and be impenitent, a non-repenter, in the sense of repentance of sorrow for sin and resolve to turn from it? The answer, of course, is no. So the repentance that is being asked of here is a repentance that is a turning from anything that would be a substitute self-righteousness and a demonstration of faith, a bearing of the fruit of faith. And the bearing of the fruit of faith means repentance. You repent because you've been given faith. You're not given faith because you repent. You can all say amen to that. Praise be to God, that's not the order. It is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the being made alive again, the granting of faith that is a gift, the imputation of Christ's righteousness for justification, and then the necessary inseparable life of repentance and deep sorrow over sin. May we never be those who say that on account of the imputed righteousness of Christ, I may therefore live in sin with no concern whatsoever. That is the natural question that comes from preaching the gospel clearly. The great British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, famously said, if you are not being accused of antinomianism, then you are not preaching the gospel clearly. It is natural when preaching the clear gospel to say, well, what? Does that mean I can sin, do whatever I want, and God's going to just forgive me? Grace will abound? He would say, as Paul did, may it never be. May that never be the attitude towards sin. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But secondly, they are to humble themselves. We see this in the next part of his message, beginning in verse 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. God doesn't need you as a nation of Jews to accomplish anything. You could make sons of Abraham out of stones. You get no special privilege because of your birth. It is only those who bear fruits in keeping with repentance that are genuinely those that belong to him, that are to the true sons of God. That's why Paul said, all Israel is not Israel. That's why Paul says that the believer is the Israel of God. The true sons of Abraham are those who are that way by faith, not by birth. And this is all coming to an end, verse 10. With the dawn of Jesus' ministry, what John the baptizer is saying is that this whole religious system, it's on the verge of collapse. You do realize that within about 40 years of Jesus' ministry, Jerusalem was destroyed, laid waste completely annihilated. The whole system was coming to an end. If you trust in that system where the scribes and the Pharisees are doing their thing at the temple, if that's what you think is going to make you right with God, four decades from now, you had no hope whatsoever. And what he's saying here is that the axe is already laid against the root of the tree. This thing is coming down. Even now, the axe, verse 10, is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. The imagery here is vivid. You don't normally cut a tree down by going for the roots. Now, you don't have to be an arborist to understand that. I've cut down enough trees in my life that when you get the chainsaw finally working, you know, which takes the first two hours. When I get that thing going, I'm not walking over to the tree and like bending down and getting the roots one at a time. I'm going somewhere, you know, about waist high and let that thing fall down. What's he talking about putting the the axe, the root. He's getting at the imagery about the fruit. You see, the fruit comes from the roots and the soil. That's what it means to bear fruit. That's what it means to be a genuine believer. I, I remember here at this church about eight years ago, just at the time of the merge that Mike Bird and I were up here, and we were talking, and he asked me, what's your position on lordship salvation?" I thought, well, i got to be careful how I answer that, because like any term, it means different things to different people. And I said, let me say this, that the best way for me to understand whether or not a person is genuinely converted is to use Jesus' illustration of the soils. And he said there were four types of soils. There was the hard-packed soil, there was the soil that had really shallow, uh, where it wasn't very deep, and then you had Um, soils that were full of other things that would cause the plant to be choked out, and then you had good soil. And at the end of the day, only one of those plants bore fruit, and that was the imagery of the true believer, and it was connected to the soil, connected to the roots in that soil. You see, the seed was good in every situation. God didn't spread bad seed, not a bad gospel. But it's how that gospel is received, and it's received deep into that one type of good soil, and the good soil is the one that produces the plant that produces the fruit. The roots and the fruit are connected. Same imagery here. He says the axe is laid at the root. That's where we're going to to sever it, because that's the thing that is causing people to not be fruit bearers. And you don't prune a tree by cutting its roots The only thing you do when you go for the root is to uproot it completely and pull it out, and notice, it goes into the fire. No Christian is sanctified by being thrown into the fire. There's debate among scholars as to what this exactly means. All I can tell you is that no matter what it means, you don't want to be thrown into the fire. These are the ones that are not genuinely converted. That was his message. No national privilege. Everyone's going to be judged. One more, and then we close. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because John's baptism was only a sign. Notice what he says in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John says that His baptism isn't even going to do for you everything you want it to do. It's just a symbol, a sign of the repentance in your heart. He says, One is coming who is greater than me. I'm not even able to carry his sandals. In the old days, rabbis and teachers often didn't make a salary, but they were entitled to be served by the people that they taught. And a rabbi in 250 A.D. said this, Quote, every service which a slave performs for his master shall, be a, shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal. The lowest thing that you could do was loosen a person's sandal or carry them for that matter. Even a slave would have to be the lowest of the low to unloose a sandal. And John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy of to unloose the sandal. And that comes from the man Jesus said was the greatest man to live. So John says, a much greater one than I is coming. And when he comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, in that type of fire, we know what that meant. That was that, that fire that came down when the Holy Spirit descends upon the people as they are gathered in the founding early church ministry of that Holy Spirit. It was very common later on, we'll see in the book of Acts, that when somebody was genuinely converted, And it happened quite often. People knew about the baptism of John, but they hadn't yet understood Jesus' baptism. We see that, for example, I just taught this in the book of Acts as I've been going through that. I have taught so many chapters lately, I can't remember honestly which one it was. I think it might have been chapter 18 where Apollos, powerful preacher in the synagogue, has to get taken aside by Priscilla and Aquila and explained more clearly the truth of the gospel. It says he only understood the baptism of John, this one here, and it wasn't sufficient to save. They had to instruct him, and afterwards, oh, he said, I understand now, and he sees it was Jesus, and he was converted. In other places in Acts, people know the gospel of John, and it's not till they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit comes down on them. And there's a very evident reaction, response, as he is poured out upon them. That's what John is saying will happen with this one who is coming. We'll say much more about this in the coming weeks. But then finally, verse 12 His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There is a great sifting and winnowing that is coming. The imagery here is what you would do at the end of your harvest you would bring all of your grain to something called a threshing floor. You might remember from a study in 2 Samuel, this was the area that David bought to build the temple and you would go to an open patch of ground on a high place where there was a good breeze and you would take your wheat and you would smash it and you would try to release all of the grain and you would take a fork and you would put it in there and you'd throw it up in the air and that breeze would take away the chaff and the grain would fall down. You would pick up that grain, put it in your barn, and all that chaff would get scooped up and burned. It's an imagery of separation. And John the Baptist says, my ministry is a ministry of separation. I'm going to preach the kingdom, and then Christ, the King, will come, and He will separate the wheat from the chaff He will separate the sheep and the goats. He will separate the wheat and the tares. All the imagery of the New Testament about this. And He will gather to Himself those that are His. And those who are not will be burned with unquenchable fire. To those of you who might not yet have put your faith in Christ, may you hear very clearly today the message of the Gospel. That when your heart is made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit to understand and to know that Gospel. And when you are invited by a herald, by a proclaimer of the Gospel, to repent of your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ, alone for your justification and your righteousness in the eyes of a holy God, I believe that He will do that work in your heart. And if today is the day of salvation for you, then we rejoice with you because just like you, there's not one person in this room who has done anything to earn such an amazing gift, but it is all by grace and grace alone. The gospel is that by grace alone, the righteousness of Christ, his act of obedience is imputed to you, and your sin is imputed to him never again to be called up against you. May that be the reality for each and everyone here today. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this amazing word in this gospel and for these precious believers. Thank you for their attention today as we've spent longer than usual here, and I trust that we haven't belabored this unnecessarily, but that your truth has been honored, that we've taken the time to truly understand what's being written here, and that we would go away from this place built up and encouraged in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would know that what unifies us and brings us together is our common need for a gracious Savior. We are no better than anyone else. We have no special standing with you, no privilege with you. We're simply objects of your mercy and grace, and so I ask that that would humble us and cause us with great love to reach out to those whom you have put under our influence, that we might be able to share with them the simple and glorious truth of the gospel. Trusting you that in your time and in your way, you will call each and every one of your children home. For we pray these things in your name. Amen.